Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. Today we're going to talk about some recent research in brain sciences done by IU faculty members and some graduate students. Guests uh, on our program today are Ed Hurt, a professor of psychological and brain sciences at Indiana University, Bill Hedrick, the chair of psychological and brain sciences at IU, and Brandon Oberlin is joining us by phone. He's research assistant professor of neurology at the IU School of Medicine. You can join the conversation by calling us at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So thank you all for being here with us today. Ed, good to have you back. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm, we're going to start with Ed Hurt uh, because you have some new research that's come out about when people actually – well, I guess when they sabotage themselves. So can you explain just in a nutshell what this research is about? Yeah, I've been studying for many years a phenomenon known as self-handicapping, which refers to the fact that sometimes when people are in important performance situations, we get so nervous about the possibility that we could fail and what implications that could have for us in terms of how others will view us, how we'll view ourselves, that... When people start entertaining the notion that they, and the propensity of failure is pretty high, they may go to the extreme of actually trying to create some excuse uh, initially so that they can blame potential failure on that excuse rather than any lack of ability or competence on their part. So we've kind of studied this phenomenon and sort of found some important things about when people are more likely to do it than not. But specifically in this research, we wanted to ask questions of if the conditions that people are under, the time of day, how much they feel kind of in control of things uh, matters or not. Well, we probably all know people like this. We probably are all people like this, as a matter of fact. But I mean, I can think of some people in my life that I know are you know, really bright, capable people. And all of a sudden, I'll see them do something that's like, why did you do that? You know, you had a really good shot at this job or something. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you couldn't make it there because something your car broke down or you couldn't get it fixed in time or something like that is that sort of what you're talking about exactly and so obviously as professors you know we have students in class that we know are really capable and then they just stop showing up or you know that you know you see people who before different kind of events you know go out partying the night before and then they're not really at their uh, best when they have to perform i mean it's just it seems to boggle the mind for somebody in terms of if something's really important why would you do those things but i think it does make sense in that if you you believe that those excuses sort of absolve you of responsibility for your performance. And so the belief is, I still could have done it if only. Mm-hmm. So the whole on the waterfront quote, I could have been a contender, right? I mean, the thing is, you can always hold on to what could have been the case had you not been under these adverse circumstances. So, so in, in, the, in your research, I mean, do you come up with strategies for people who may recognize this in, in themselves? Well, I think at this point, we're really just trying to understand when they do it. And then if we can really get to the to understanding that, then I think we can work towards potentially trying to circumvent that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting that there's sort of a, you know, a, a name for this or a research research that documents this, because, like I said, I, you know, I've seen it time and again. And I remember, you know, well, I won't go into all my history of seeing this or doing this, but it's it's certainly something that 
It happens a lot. Yes. Right. So then the other research that just was released is Brandon Oberlin's research, and it has to do with with the brain and with um, with addiction. So do you want to explain what your research is about? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're interested in how the brain responds to drug-paired cues, and the types of cues we use are uh, the flavor cues, and specifically the flavor of beer, a person's preferred beer, so a cue that they have a lot of experience with. These are in heavy drinkers. And uh, in a nutshell, we're interested in what these uh, drug-paired cues are doing in the brain and uh, what other factors may be related to that, ultimately getting at uh, motivational states that are particular to drug and drug use. So I'm curious with with all of this brain research, if you can just describe even like where we've how far we've come in even the last ten years in terms of the technology and what's needed in order to study the brain on this deep of a level. Um, that's yeah. That's uh, the research technology has advanced considerably in the last ten twenty years. Uh, the resolution in fMRI, which is probably the most common modality, has kept getting better, and it continues to improve at an accelerating pace. So the resolution is getting better, uh, the ability to sample faster in time is getting better, and stimulus presentation techniques are evolving. Uh, Some of those aren't aren't so high-tech, but experimental design is so important. And so the early brain images that you saw uh, in, you know, the 90s are not as good as they are today. Uh, they're lower resolution, and so there's, you can only make uh, inferences about larger structures. We're able to make a lot better inferences now uh, on smaller structures and on tasks, event-related tasks that are presented uh, closely in time. So, yeah, could you, uh, I'm going to ask you to dig a little deeper into this for me because it's, so I, you know, I have a sip of my favorite beer or a drink of my favorite beer and I'm going to have one reaction. And if I have, um, you know, a ginger ale, it's going to be totally different, correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, and so and what, so what are you seeing? I mean, you know, how are you determining <laughs> this? Really, the study that was just published was an extension of an earlier finding. And in fact, it was an extension of the earlier subject groups. Well, so if I may, I, I will mm-hmm. recap by saying, sure. in the earlier finding, we were interested specifically in dopamine in a reward area called the ventral striatum. Uh, it's reward, it's motivation, it's learning, it's a lot of things, but it's definitely been linked to drug-specific uh, things. Right? All drugs of abuse, pretty much, cause dopamine release in this area. Now, in our earlier study, we showed uh, it was a pretty large sample, mostly younger but heavy drinkers, that the taste of beer, and I mean just a little bit of beer, so just really the flavor, just the alcohol pairedness of it, uh, caused dopamine release. We inferred that it's uh, dopamine release. It's really reduction in uh, tracer binding. Uh, won't get into that, but we concluded that it was dopamine release and that it was um, related to beer, not just anything that tastes good. We used as a control Gatorade because Gatorade is not a common drink mixer, although it's not unheard of, I suppose, but, um, and it's uh, similar in, in rated intensity to the flavor of beers. So we used that as our control and found dopamine release. However, in the earlier finding, which was a positron emission tomography finding, or study, uh, that was uh, with 11, um, <clears throat> C11 raclopride, uh, the, the results were specific to the striatum. In other words, the signal-to-noise ratio is not such that you can see very much outside the striatum. And so 
we extended that study by using a similar design in functional magnetic resonance imaging, which is not specific to dopamine. So you can see other neurotransmitter systems, and in fact, you don't know which neurotransmitter system you're looking at. You're only looking at a change. So you infer, uh, it really has to do with blood oxygenation states, but you infer neural activity from that. In any case, we know that there are areas from anatomical uh, studies out there that project to the ventral striatum. So this area that we saw the dopamine release in, we said, okay, let's extend the findings using a different technology, fMRI. Now, with a similar paradigm, can we see uh, other reward areas, particularly in limbic frontal areas, so uh, uh, orbital frontal cortex, the part of the brain just above the eyes, basically. It's been very uh, heavily implicated in reward of all sorts, uh, and especially drug reward, but also other rewards. So, so that, yeah. was, that, was an ex- that was the extension. That's... That was what we published recently, is that in some of those same subjects, we found also uh, reward areas in frontal limbic frontal cortex, and we also found that self-reported craving for alcohol correlated with activation in these areas to the flavor of beer. Okay, so, uh, you know, for a, a, a lay person like me, I mean, what what's the implication of this for, you know, research going forward, you know, if, if for an, al- an alcoholic that wants to stop being an alcoholic? What's, what are the implications? Are there, are there implications with this? Well, I mean... In a sense, we are really in the stage of trying to figure out exactly what's going on in the brain, but uh, when, when drug, drug condition stimuli are present. However, if I could just go on a limb here a little bit, I would say that what I believe, what we think is going on, is that these states, these drug-paired uh, neural changes, are probably related to motivational and craving states and to an alcoholic in recovery, for instance, it would be good to avoid stimuli that are related to alcohol. I mean, the taste of beer, obviously, but even something like a bar environment or an alcohol-rich environment or anything that's connected to uh, drug use. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to back up here a little bit and say this could be a real problem for somebody who's you know, been using for a long time. A lot of environmental cues are going to be drug-paired, mm-hmm. right? Right, 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 and and I would think, and you know, I'm just taking this a step further. I would think you you see a, you know, a Budweiser commercial on television. Would that right be the same kind of that? Could it, also, yeah, you know. on some level, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is related to the drug of choice and is probably doing something in the brain, something related to motivational states paired with drugs and intoxication. Not mm-hmm. what we want to see in a recovery state. Gotcha. Okay. All right, I want to bring Bill Hedrick in as the chair of psychological and brain sciences. I mean, we've heard about two different kinds of, of research going on. And, you know, I know President Michael McRobbie is very um, bullish on all the research dollars coming to IU and all this. So I just want you to, to talk about some of the research coming out of your department, you know, like Ed's research, and, you know, how important that is to, you know, to the department uh, as a whole and to, you know, the university. We're very fortunate here at IU to have extraordinary research uh, faculty. And um, in our department, for example, we rank in the top 10 in the country in terms of research support by federal agencies supporting the type of research that you're hearing about. So I think we've made a tremendous investment. We have an opportunity to um, begin to translate this research into some of the things that I think a lot of the listeners will be interested in. How will this help me? How will this affect uh, the state of Indiana? And um, we're uh, 
ahead of the curve in terms of this translational process. Um, the IU School of Medicine uh, is home to the Indiana Clinical and Translational Research Institute. And so IU is making explicit investment in this translational question of how do we take basic research and begin to apply it, translate it into meaningful uh, outcomes, and then how does that then affect policy so that we can have better policy to uh, deal with things like um, ad addictions that we're discussing here. So there's a tremendous upside to the investments that IU is making and uh, uh, tremendous opportunities. When we look at some of the research that's being done um, like around addiction and around alcohol, how does that then inform, I guess, other specifically as we're talking about like dopamine and other things, how does that then cross into other areas with addiction and other brain functions? Well, as Professor yeah, Oberlin just pointed out, there's th there are common substrates. And so the um, dopamine system is a pleasure system, the reward system. And whether it's obsessive-compulsive behaviors um, that are uh, independent of addictions, whether it's addictions, whether it's um, an Internet form of addiction versus a substance form of addiction, understanding these basic biological substrates can sometimes fe seem somewhat distant to our constituents, that is the people in the state who are supporting IU, but it's only through understanding these basic mechanisms, like so which, such as what Professor Oberlin and his team, uh, David Kerrigan and others are doing, that if we understand these basic mechanisms, we can then have the ability to leverage that knowledge into applied outcomes. If I could expand on Professor Oberlin's work just uh, briefly, what's really fascinating about that study is that it is a cue that induced these mm. brain changes, not alcohol itself. So he gave mm. a flavor of alcohol. And what he's telling us is, is that this research is informing us about the preparatory state that repeated alcohol exposure, essentially pairing alcohol, um, the, 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 the drug alcohol with this flavor of this beer, this flavor, that that pairing prepares the brain in a certain way, changes the brain. And I think that the treatment implications are just as we were discussing earlier, that these cues, the cue of the bar you drive by, the cue of um, the smell of uh, maybe cigarettes that are associated with uh, drinking in some cases, these cues powerfully change our brain substrates and make us more vulnerable to these types of problems. But we would never have known that had these types of basic studies not been done. So I think we're kind of today celebrating some of the importance of basic science and this basic knowledge, how it will translate to applied problems. Would those cues perhaps, I, I'm assuming this would all be different in each person, so like that might, might not affect me and it might affect Bob, for example. Does the research, does this kind of research show us that? Or? It, it's certainly in line with that, and Professor Oberlin would probably can be I the jump, best person. Can yeah. I jump in here on that? Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Because uh, our first study, that was one of our key findings, and I sort of skipped over that so I could get to talk about this one. But uh, in the first study, we showed that having a first-degree relative with probable alcoholism induced a much larger dopamine response. So suggesting a pre-existing condition that is neurochemical in nature, right? And it was um, about a four times increase in uh, inferred dopamine release versus people without relatives with probable alcoholism. So all the subjects were heavy drinkers, but if you were uh, closely related, in other words, had high genetic risk, then there was something different about the function of the brain when it comes to drug-paired reinforcers, like the taste of beer. Mm -hmm. And these things end up getting tied to seemingly irrelevant stimuli. 
So uh, in this particular study, he's used what we would all think of as the direct association, the taste, the flavor of a beer. But what we know from the research that um, his work builds on is that other cues in your environment, where you're physically located, who else is around you, what friends are in the social group that you're in, that these cues that a lot of us just ignore for uh, the sake of the complexity of the environment, we simplify it and say these probably don't matter, but there's a lot of evidence that seemingly irrelevant cues um, can be pretty potent triggers. They change these fundamental brain substrates that then lead to these vulnerabilities. Well, it sounds like this is also um, you know, just turning the, the alcohol and cigarette thing in reverse. I mean, I've heard of people who say, you know, I can't go to a bar. I'm trying to quit smoking, so I can't go to a bar anymore. Mm-hmm. Is that similar? Yeah. It's a, one primes the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're working on this documentary about heroin. and. Um, one of our users in the documentary makes the comment that I, f- I forget the there's a term for it, but saying that it's more that routine probably than anything is like she's addicted to mm-hmm. the routine of getting up and calling her dealer. And mm-hmm. to me, it was just kind of but but a lot of people were saying that it's not necessarily the drug. It's, it's the root. Uh, this is what Professor Oberlin's research shows is that the cue is fundamentally changing the substrates in a way that um, itself uh, opens a cascade, creates a cascade that is reinforcing. Um, I mean, the other thing that's brilliant about his work is that it's associative learning. Um, In his papers, he refers to it as conditioned stimuli. But this is going back to, I think, what most of us realize is Pavlov, right? Right. This is the dog and the meat powder and the bell. And he's simply saying that some of these cues, they aren't bells, and like in Pavlov's case, but some of these cues are tastes and flavors and sounds and social contexts, and these things are um, ultimately changing our brain. Our but behavior changes mm-hmm. our brain. To put a positive these, these spin on this. These cues can be almost anything, no, right. Right? Exactly. Anything. anything present in the environment that predicts intoxication. To somebody who's using a lot, that could be a lot of things throughout the day. That could be getting up in the morning. That could be having lunch. That could be the color of the wall in the room that's commonly used in. could be a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Right. I think you can put a positive spin on this. This only doesn't explain negative kind of cycles as well. You could imagine somebody who has a routine that gets them to do positive things. So, for example, you know, somebody who's a runner and they have an early morning routine and start putting those things on and they, you know, all those kind Absolutely. of cues you know, can be energizing in the sense of getting you to exercise, do that stuff, whereas breaking that routine, all of a sudden, eh, you know, just can't can't muscle up the energy to do this kind of stuff. So we could see being able to spin this in a positive fashion as well as just focusing on the, <laughs> the negative cycles yeah. that establish in these same kinds of cue-based systems. I'm learning a lot about myself today. All right. <laughs> that I used to run. Right. So 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, 1-877-285-9348 outside the local calling area. You can also join live chat at WFIU.com org slash noon edition and you can follow us on twitter at noon edition so i had a question just from from your study um there i just want to make sure i understand it right mm-hmm. you're saying morning people reported greater alertness at sunrise but then they self-handicapped more in the morning right. so if you are a runner and you get up and run in the morning says that Explain to me what that means. If you are that morning, you you define yourself as a morning person, so you generally run in the mornings. Yeah. Is that good? Well, what's interesting about the work that we did, okay, was that most people would think, when are you going to sabotage yourself? When are you going to sort of do uh, these counterproductive things? And you would think you would do it when you're at your most vulnerable points. Right. 
your most you know, off-peak kind of times. But one of the things that many people argued about the behavior that we're talking about is, don't you really have to strategize about this? I mean, this isn't something that you just do without thinking about what the possible implications are. What's going to make me look good? What's going to save face for me in this situation? And so from one perspective, we argued, is it just a, a sort of a situation where people do this at their most vulnerable, or is it something that actually requires people to have the aforethought to be able to strategize about this? And you could make either argument. And so that's what set up an interesting kind of thing where it's interesting either way, right? Mm-hmm. And so what we found, though, was that it really requires the effort to be able to scrutinize, like, what are the implications of this situation? for me, and we tend to do that more when we have our full contingent of resources. So when morning people are in the morning, they're more able to realize, oh my gosh, what is this going to say about me if I don't do well? Whereas, you know, I think sometimes with the fatigue, it's just get through it. You know, I'm just going to move on. I want to go to bed. I want to, you know, do this. And so they don't really strategize as much. They don't really think about the implications of this. And interestingly, what else we found was that people didn't actually show the same level of concern that they would otherwise. So like at your peak is when you can get the most worked up and most concerned about the possible implications of, I'm getting worried I might fail here, I'm getting worried that I may not be able to live up to my own or others' expectations. So if you're a morning person exercising, you're more likely to to talk yourself into quitting earlier, though perhaps. Right? Only if you no. think you can't, you're not going to make whatever the other people <laughs> right. around you tell you is your like quota for the day, right? Mm-hmm. If you're supposed to do the 15 mile, you know, <laughs> run today or whatever, then you start thinking hey, maybe, maybe. All right, we're going to follow up on a lot of this <laughs> okay. in the second half of our program, but uh, we're going to have to take a short break now. If you want to give us a call and talk about these brain science, brain sciences, and we might be able to figure out what's uh, going on with you, give us a call eight one two eight five five zero eight one one. One eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber online at smithville.com and IU School of Public Health Bloomington online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org and you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with WFIU and WTIU's News Bureau Chief, Sarah Whitmire. We have three guests with us today as we talk about some recent research in brain sciences. And I I don't want to oversell the case. We probably can't figure out what's going on with you if you call in. But 
Give us a call anyway. We'd love to, to, to talk to you. And so would Ed Hurt, Professor of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Indiana University, Brandon Oberlin, a Research Assistant Professor of Neurology at the Indiana University School of Medicine, and Bill Hetrick, the Chair of Psychological and Brain Sciences. Phone number 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, or you can even follow us on Twitter at noon edition. So question has come in from actually our production booth. Um, so, Ed, if people are drawn to, you know, addictive substances, is that sometimes a way to self-sabotage? Absolutely. In fact, some of the early research that talked about this phenomenon in the first place was in terms of taking drugs or alcohol to be able to service that potential handicap that prevented you from uh, doing uh, as well as potentially you could do. So, yeah, that's seen as, as one of array of many different types of ways that people might handicap themselves, absolutely. So what are some other ways that people would... Well, the way we did it was we dealt with a very simple one that we could actually study more easily um, mm -hmm. from an ethical point of view as well as, you know, just pragmatic thing. And that is a lot of times we just claim things. Mm -hmm. We claim, oh, you know, athletes that claim, oh, yeah, I'm a flare-up of that, you know, arthritic oh. knee or whatever. We did it with claims of being under so much stress in, in our own da daily lives that we couldn't focus and do well on a test. So that's certainly one thing. Other things that we find and have studied a lot in our lab is how much preparatory kind of behavior people do. So we think that our students should be studying before they take exams, that they should you know, do all kinds of important things that we think go through exercises, et cetera, that we know that could help us. So if you just say, eh, I'm blowing it off, I'll take a cold turkey, that kind of thing of actually avoiding opportunities that can help you, that's another kind of form of handicapping that we've looked at too. A lot of times I feel like as we're learning more about addiction, we hear, I've heard a lot of people say, well, I have an addictive personality. Mm -hmm. I know not to do those things. Is there such a thing as a quote unquote, just an addictive personality, whether it be, I want to play basketball every day, or I have to have a glass of wine every day, or are more people susceptible just to that? Well, if I may. Yes, it, please. There's clearly, clearly uh, heritable elements, right? I mean, the heritability of drug and alcohol addiction is much higher than most other psychiatric disorders. So there's something there, and there are other traits that seem to correlate with it. But a prototypical addictive personality, I'm not sure about that. And I'm not sure if there's evidence to support um, that, you know, if, if there, somebody's profile as an addictive personality. But certainly there are pre-existing uh, risk factors, I think, uh, and personality traits uh, inherited and probably learned as well. I want to go back to to this idea of translational, you know, translating research into into the practical because I think that's always been I've always felt like that was a a handicap in Indiana. Maybe it is in a lot of states, but when you go to the legislature, you want money for higher education, um, and there's always this sort of tug of war between teaching and research. And pe Hoosiers, I think, generally understand you're going to teach my kid to do better and to get a job than they understand the effectiveness and the importance of research. So, so Bill Hetrick, you started talking about, about that. Um, just let's go a little deeper into that. How do you get those messages across? Yeah. It's, 
There's a tug of war. I love that analogy. Um, as basic scientists uh, in the ivory tower, if you will, to sort of balkanize this a little bit, but as basic scientists in the ivory tower, we want to have certainty that what we know is true. Before we take that out and uh, leverage the public trust in us that this works. So we tend to be very conservative, right? Uh, Brendan's study and Ed's studies, these studies have been peer-reviewed by, and they're published in rigorous journals. And this is part of what we need to do in order to know that what we know is the truth. It's, it's as good as, as we know at the, for the current time. It's the best model we have. That tends to create tension with the, those who are at the other side saying, give it to me. You know, tell me what's going on. Let me apply what you've learned. And I think that this is what we're beginning to do with a new era of researchers. We're beginning to say, walk that line between your basic lab research and understanding what the implications are for the public, and then going further and beginning to study uh, the, the, the questions that are affecting the public. And in fact, that's what the federal government is investing in through the Translational Research Institute Initiative. The um, National Institutes for Health established a brand new division, the Division of uh, Translational Research. And um, this is in response to, I think, what you're asking about, which is I've always sort of viewed universities as doing something. I'm not sure what they do. But let's take the analogy of flying, of, of taking a spacecraft to the moon. You've got to know that you're going to be able to get those people back. And so you want to rest on the strongest science. Um, so I think this is the natural tension. And what IU is beginning to do through the Grand Challenge Program in particular is to say we have these public-facing uh, programs that are addressing pressing needs in the state and that are going to solve big problems. Um, and the faculty have rallied around this. Um, and. Uh, one of the first grand challenges, the first grand challenge, precision medicine, is addressing what you're saying. Mm -hmm. How can we take what we know about basic science and precisely apply it, apply it at the individual level to affect, in, in the case of precision medicine, they put a big emphasis on cancer um, and other forms of physical disability but, uh, or physical illness. But yeah, this is a tension, and I think that the university is doing uh, quite a bit right now to be responsive to this translational desire. Well, I think I think Sarah and I are, you know, we're in a profession where, you know, what we try to do is break it down to what's this mean to you? And so there probably is sometimes a tension between, you know, academic research and popular media because we don't have the skill probably to translate as well as we should. You mentioned grand challenges, but I feel like we should explain that a little bit for folks who don't know what that is. Would you mind jumping in and just explaining what what because you did receive one of the grand challenges, correct? We were a finalist, you, a finalist for the grand, in the grand challenge program, and our project was about health equity in the context of addiction and substances of abuse. But the grand challenge program is a program that says, "What are some of the biggest issues that we face? Water." environmental change, uh, illness, uh, wealth, uh, health and well-being. And so the university put out a call for faculty um, to collaborate with community organizations and groups in the state and other agencies and come up with initiatives to tackle some of these big problems. Um, and that's why they're called grand challenges. They're big problems. Um, our water sources uh, and our health. 
And in turn, the university evaluated these proposals and is, over the next couple of years, going to invest in several Grand Challenge projects that will have very practical effects for the citizens of the state of Indiana. And just, just to, to play off of that a little bit, because we're talking about you know, some brain research, and I guess I'm just asking for a reaction to this, but it, it seems to me that there's, there's little that could be, um, well, let me, let, me pro- let me say it this way. The brain is a really important thing to study, I would think, why we do what we, what we do. And I guess I just wanted to throw that out there from the, the whole idea, and you know, we're talking about you know, the IU School of Medicine and the you know, psychological and brain sciences at Indiana University and just trying to figure out why we do what we do. How much, I mean, how has, has research changed in the times that, that you, I guess all three of you have been involved in this field? Is it becoming more and more of a, um, you know, something to study or do you think it's always been as important as it is today? It is, I think, the final frontier of the human body. Um, it is, uh, clearly we had the decade of the brain uh, a few decades ago, um, and I think that we're beginning to get technology. There's a huge initiative that the White House and um, the National Institutes of Health have collaborated on called the Brain Initiative, and it's to really understand deeply the wiring, the neurochemistry, the physical uh, characteristics of the brain in order to break through and begin to understand better how we can deal with addiction, how we can deal with Alzheimer's disease, aging, um, and how we can live more healthy lives in general. And so I think there have been huge changes. For example, the ability to do imaging. Uh, Professor Oberlin was talking about using a MRI, magnetic resonance imaging uh, technology. These technologies are now accessible. and. Um, they're in departments like ours, psychological and brain sciences. We can leverage these as a result of university investment in this technology. Um, that's a huge change. When I was getting into the field, it was expensive to do brain recordings with EEG, and now those are more commonplace. Um, we can now get scans of the body, of the brain, that tell us something about the neurochemistry um, using spectroscopy. So I think that we've seen just a revolution in technology um, and brain imaging. Um, that has to be balanced against behavior because how we behave, and this is, I think, what comes back to the study on addictions that uh, Professor Oberlin's done, how we behave and the kinds of associations that we form through our behavior, in fact, change our brain. And we need to study that as well. The other thing I think that has really changed is the whole idea about this being a collaborative effort. I think a lot of times in the past, people kind of had their own isolated labs and kind of worked relatively autonomously in many cases. And now it's gotten to be the idea that this is a bigger process, big science. There's lots of different people from different expertise that are necessary to do and make real progress on these things. And so, yes, there might be some people really focused on on the elemental level, what's happening in the brain. There may be other people who might be at the back end in terms of how do we best disseminate this to people? How do we break down the resistance that there is for, you know, trying to motivate different changes? Or how do we get into the nature of the school systems or the infrastructure that's necessary to actually implement some of the stuff? And that, you know, having people with expertise at different kind of levels, whether it's statistical level, whether it's a computational level, whether it's a theoretical level, or whether it's implementational kind of exercise you know, all those people can get together, and that's why these grand challenges are an idea of bringing a team together that can ultimately make some change. Professor Oberlin, you want to respond on some of this because I think it has a lot to do with what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm a little younger, so fMRI was in common use by the time I was doing it. 
And they're making so us feel old here. <laughs> What's that? They're making us feel pretty old here. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I can't even see you, so I don't know if you're older than I am or not. But <laughs> I'm assuming. Yeah. And it was already in common use, but it has changed a lot even while I've been in it. And I've only been doing it for uh, six years. And the uh, the emerging technology is very exciting. And, it, you know, I want to say something about, well, about this other study, too. Dr. Hurt's study was uh, really interesting to me in, in that it was about motivational states and the unexpected finding there. Uh, I think that highlights the importance of behavior, too, right? It's easy to get excited about machines that have whistles and bells and so forth, but in the end, without well-designed studies that m precisely measure what you're trying to measure, uh, you don't, you can't take full advantage of it. The technology is exciting and it's accelerating fast, but we also need people that are really good at understanding behavior and how to measure it and how to uh, induce our intended response in the laboratory. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that evol that's evolving too. All right, our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Okay, and we have a question um, from our producing booth, but what is brain research and what, I guess, what is brain research and studies like these telling us about the nature of free will? Well, that's a big question. That is a big question. Who <laughs> <laughs> would like to take that one? <laughs> There's William? a study that I sometimes refer to that talks, that, that indicates to me the importance of the environment and how environment um, changes us. So if you take a litter of kittens uh, and raise half the litter in darkness for, say, the first six weeks and the other half the litter in just light, unfortunately, those that were raised in darkness will never be able to see for the rest of their lives. These kittens born from the same litter are physically very similar, of course. They share all of their genetic traits, uh, most of them. I mean, it, it depends. They're not a, a monozygotic, for example. But what this tells us is that the environment has a tremendous influence on our nervous system. So when you ask, well, what is free will, our behaviors may be chosen to some extent, but the environment has an impression on us. If we experience a devastating uh, tornado in our town that just levels it, as has happened in Kansas occasionally, these stressors are being born by our nervous system. And um, so I think it's quite complicated to sort of understand when, in fact, the environment has a strong, such a strong influence on our neurobiology, then what's left for us to act on willfully uh, is a very good question, and one, of course, that philosophers debate <laughs> uh, yeah. heavily. So, I, 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 but, but I guess I, I would say that my point here is that the environment plays an important role, and we sometimes talk very reductionistically that my brain caused this, my DNA caused this, but these things need to be expressed, and often the environment acts on our neurobiology for these genes to be expressed, for these propensities to be expressed. I will say also that I have some students who are really interested in this question, so I, I'm amazed that this caller actually brought this up because in my subdiscipline, which is social psychology, there's a lot of people debating the inf implications of these things. Like we talked about all this cueing and the priming kind of effects that occur where we're influenced by so many features around us to the extent is, is our behavior sort of predetermined. And one of the things that we find in our discipline is that beyond what 
may be the, physiolo- the physiology of this, and it would be nice to sort of interface the two. What we believe about free will determines a lot of our own behavior. So if I think I have control over things, I act in a very different way than people who think things are much more predetermined. And people differ on these belief systems. Now, where that comes from, obviously, some people are induced into that in terms of their own socialization and the messages that they've had throughout life. But the the belief systems that we espouse and, and sort of accept really do in many ways determine the constraints that we put on ourselves in terms of whether we act and take advantage of opportunities to present to us or sort of resign ourselves to, I don't have control and I can't do mm-hmm. things about it. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic there of how much of this is biologically driven versus, you know, as they say, motivationally or just within our own kind of belief systems. Mm-hmm. Well, there's, a, there's another elaboration to this, too, an idea that's sort of been introduced to me recently, which, which is that... Uh, it, you have you have the the biological hardwiring and the genetics, and then you've got the environment. But there, whatever willful choices people make changes their environment, right? Absolutely. If I choose to go to the library or I chose choose to go to the bar, that's going to have different sti- that's going to expose my nervous system to different stimuli, which then have a different biological response. And so there's this feedback loop where free will whatever that is exactly is injected into it at every stage but but the environment and the the genes are also always there okay so we were talking earlier uh, about sort of the multidisciplinary effects that are going on how collaboration is happening and i wonder you know when when we start talking about all this brain research and some of the things we're going to be able to find out where ethics is involved and where the ethicists are on, you know, if you find out that if you make a little certain change to a brain, it could change a person. How's that come into all of this? The technologies right now for directly manipulating neural activity are um, coming along, mm-hmm. and I think this is going to be a very big area for ethical discussions. Right now, I feel like it's sort of in its infancy. Being able to directly manipulate brain activity, uh, other than you know, sort of blunt, blunt instruments like drugs, uh, I'm thinking more of targeted mechanisms uh, like TMS, uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, things like that that aren't so well understood. Uh, this is going to be a big question in coming years. Yeah, I mean, we could veer off to a wide ethical discussion because this has to do with you know technology, and you see it every, all the time with social media and with what the government can look, can watch and you know what what we do in the media and everything else with you know the, the the science is bringing us so many tools that you have to just decide how to use them i guess one of the things that will be important for us as scientists is for society to deci- to, to define what wellness and well-being is what are we aiming for when we tr- say that we want to improve brain health Is it longevity at the expense of mobility? Is it um, productivity? Is it some other experience? So I think that Ed was talking about the fact that we need big science and collaboration. The other form of collaboration that we need and that this particular question calls for is collaboration between society at large and the scientific community to work on understanding what well-being essentially means. And one other thing that intersects with this particular point, I think, is the issue of the brain and what it typically is associated with when it doesn't work properly, and that is 
mental health problems, depression, mm -hmm. schizophrenia, and addiction. Unfortunately, these are stigmatized conditions. And so we need to think very carefully about the fact that, for example, addiction and substance abuse disorders take about one and a half to three times more resources than cancers do in our productivity, in the cost to society. But because of the stigma, we are at odds with sort of directly addressing these problems um, and, and hitting them head on with funding and with public support. And I think this is where shows like this that get us to talking about these issues are very important to sort of remove the stigma about uh, brain disorders and to understand what good brain function is. So you described earlier the brain research as kind of being the final frontier in mm -hmm. the study of the human body. So I'm just curious, a question for all three of you, just what if there's a question or an area that you just really hope to uncover or a big question you hope to answer, you know, in the next several years, what, what would that be for, for each of you? Would you like to go first, Ed? Well, uh, my my whole career has, has really focused on uh, that sort of performance thing. That's always been the kind of role of motivation and performance. And I think, you know, a lot of times they say we study what we want to understand about ourselves and about people around us. And that's always been such a fascinating thing for me that that has captured my interest in so many different levels of how you know, people seem to be able to, and I'm a big sports fan, you know, people who are, we love those athletes who just give 100%. Maybe they're not as talented as somebody else, but they're able to sort of succeed despite that. And then people that we know that have this talent and never seem to be able to live up to it. And just the role that our motivations play in performance has always been something fascinating. So I want to continue to be able to understand both these kind of things like the self-handicapping thing where people underperform, but also those kinds of things that you can do to enhance performance. And so, again, on kind of both of those angles, if I can get there, I'm going to be very happy. Well, can I, can I interject here and just say that, you know, of all the research that I've been associated with, or not associated with, but I've been exposed to over my career in Bloomington, the one that I quote most often is Ed Hertz burging research on basking in reflected glory about, uh, you know, how people feel after their sports team win mm -hmm. yeah. the next day. So, yeah. all right. <laughs> That's very <laughs> Brandon, what what do you think? Where do you, I mean, you're you're early in your career. What do you hope is sort of this this question you can solve or something? Um. Well, my research is all aimed towards uh, sort of a narrow view of how do I how do we understand addiction and really decision making. Motivational states are in there too. So uh, the studies that I am involved with and and. The questions I asked are all related to understanding the neurobiology of this maladaptive trait. And something that's always fascinated me about addiction is here you have a motivational state, if you will, a condition that motivates people to, to take poison, right? You don't see this in nature very much. If we believe that selective pressure has produced organisms that are well-suited for their environment over the years, and we have a lot of evidence for that, then we also believe that this is a sort of behavior that should be selected against. In other words, it shouldn't even exist. Um, and so how does it happen? And that's really kind of the fundamental question for me. And I, I've started to kind of come to the idea that it, it's, a, it's a byproduct of other more adaptive traits, and it's been carried along with it. Certainly when human evolution was in its really active phase, uh, I don't think drugs of abuse were a common problem. You know, surviving to tomorrow is the more common problem. 
and now we have the luxury of spending our time and money taking drugs. And uh, it's a fascinating behavior to me because it's so fundamentally maladaptive, right? And so um, why is that, this, this big paradox? It defies reason, and, and frankly, it defies a lot of methods that have been attempted to understand it from perspectives of feeding, perspectives of learning. Some of these, th- I mean, it's a, it's a paradox in a lot of these regards. So to me, it's a big mystery that I want to unfold, and, and I'm coming at it mostly from now the decision-making standpoint. Mm-hmm. All right, we have about two minutes to go. So, Bill? I'm excited about the possibility of sort of bringing <clears throat> together these, th- these things. First, um, the brain structure. We are beginning to map the brain and understand its structure in extraordinarily complex ways. Indiana University has um, extraordinary computing power through KARST and other resources that McRobbie's invested in and the trustees have supported. And I think that we can begin to use this extraordinary computing power to understand um, and process images taken of the brain so we can begin to put together the puzzle. Secondly is the chemistry. I, mean, I think I'm very excited about some of the things that are happening in terms of revealing a new neurochemical pathways and new neurochem- neurochemical substrates. And then finally, bringing behavior into all of this. As we've one of the themes we've had of the session today is the fact that the environment shapes our brain. And if we can understand how that environment is acting on the neurochemistry and the wiring, the physical connectedness, I think we'll make a lot of progress. And I think we've got the tools and uh, support to do this. And it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next 10 years. All right. This is a very quick question. I, I don't know if, even if it's a question. I think about environment. I think about, you know, what you live around. I think about how Bloomington is different from a lot of communities in the state. You know, we're going into a big political year, but the environment, how much does that have to do? I mean, you're, the political environment that you are in, where you live, what you hear, who you talk to, how much does that have to do with who you're choosing to support? Ed? Amazing amount. I mean, I think we just sort of see that that so much we are a product of the environment that we have, both from in terms of our childhood, but but the immediate environment, as you said, the kinds of things that 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 people think are important, the kinds of things that we are exposed to, are going to constantly shape our our way of thinking and and the kind of beliefs that we have. And I mean, many people think Bloomington is a bastion of certain things relative to the state. It, you know, are we a product of our environment, or is this what we select to be here because we are those? Kinds Kind of people, but it's a mutual, synergistic kind of thing. Very quickly. And our collective investment in the environment changes who we are as a community. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know extraordinary, uh, we know from extraordinary research that enriched environments uh, result in extraordinarily different brains and extraordinarily different behavior. And so I would say mm-hmm. that as a community, we're investing, any investment we make in our public trails, in our public transportation system, in the well-being of our citizens, ends up helping all of us. Okay, we are out of time. That's great. I appreciate your your responses to that last quick question. Uh, for Ed Hurt, Brandon Oberlin, and Bill Hetrick, thank you all for being here today. For uh, our producer, Drew Dodlin, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined. 
addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.